Welcome to the Madcast, episode three. My name is Evan Kempe, and I am joined by the illustrious Eric Eisman. <laughs> good to be here. Yeah, man. It's good to be back. You know, we've got yep. a very, very cool episode for you today. We're talking with James Pluth later on. But first, let's talk about some news. In news this week, uh, on a personal side, uh, Waves released their Studio Rack uh, app, which I know some of you won't care, but um, if you get a second and you uh, want to check that out, it does a lot of cool things. Um, it allows you to run your Waves plugins as multiband uh, rather than broadband. Um, so if you don't know what that means, that's fine, but you can, uh, I recommend Googling it and maybe get it on a Waves website and kind of seeing what it's all about. You can save chains and take them to different computers and stuff. So uh, if you're into the Waves plugin in the Waves world, uh, definitely check that out. I've been messing with it, and it's some super cool stuff. Anything new happening uh, in your world, Evan? Well, for sound designers like myself, I knew, you know, we primarily rely on Mac-based systems. Mm. Uh, some people use PC with Ableton and stuff like that, but the the big news in the Mac world is the new OS release of Big Sur. Indeed. Uh, and the, uh, I guess I haven't looked a lot into the actual details of the OS and what Likewise. it does and what it doesn't do, um, but I know it can be a little scary when when Mac does this. Um, yeah, it's new and scary every time there's a drop like this because it's really going to affect people in music production, people in sound design, people in post, because, you know, all of the plugins like Waves, they need to update what they're mm -hmm. doing to work with this software. And then you don't want to have a software mismatch. And if you're trying to send stuff out to clients and, you know, so they can hear it, you know, let's say they've got their own personal copy of Waves, it might get messed up. You know, other uh, plugins are available, we should mm -hmm. say. But, you know, it's just, it's always scary. It's, it's always, there's always uncertainty. Yeah. I'm still on Mojave because I haven't, uh, I just haven't updated the Catalina yet. I, I think everything I use is, uh, Catalina ready, except maybe some of the, uh, Dante stuff, but I'm sure they have mm -hmm. that figured out by now. I just haven't even checked. Uh, so I guess maybe I should update the Catalina soon. You know, <laughs> It's funny, after COVID canceled everything in the marching arts world in April, I said, you know what? I'm sitting here. I've got time. Let me just take the risk, take the jump, and just update everything. My, my iPad Pro, I haven't updated in like two years. My MacBook, I haven't updated in a couple of years. So I said, you know what? Let me do it. And I feel like since I've done that, there's been like four releases of Apple OS <laughs> since April. Updates yeah. and this and that. And it's just like, oh my God. You know, I... Uh, I'm a PC guy through and through. I've been building computers forever. Uh, you know. I'm sorry. <laughs> and this is a conversation we had in 2015. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> where you're like, well, you know, you just got to get into the Apple world. And here I am, you know, sitting with a MacBook in front of me while my PC sits forlorn looking at me like, hey, right. why don't you play some Star Citizen or something? <laughs> you know, I'm here, buddy. So <laughs> it is even as a, a convert and whatever, 15, 10 years ago, I went to Mac and never came back. But mm. when they switched to Intel processors, that was a huge 
I don't want to call it a disaster, but but it was it was a problem, and this Catalina update has been a problem. Been a problem. Mm. Um, oh, uh, so any of these updates can be scary, but all I can recommend is don't do it. Don't be the guinea pig unless you really really want to. And the other thing I can recommend is backup. Yeah, back up your stuff and never you update it, in the middle of a season. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, please no, no, do no. not do that. Do not update your main stage in the middle of the season. Your sound is nice. Well, thank you. <laughs> if you like your data, you need to own three copies of it. I forget what there's some dude who has a uh, who this rule is named after him. But if you have any data that you want to actually keep and care about, you need to have three copies of it. So back up your computer. Don't update first wait until everybody else figures out what's wrong mm. with it i've been a backup nerd for the longest time to, to mm. much you know i've been made fun of a lot for that i back up my tf every single day i use it you know at my school so it, you, you really just save your butt by doing backups and that goes for everything in this business it's not like we're running an analog console where that knob is going to stay where it is you know hey even on analog that knob can get bumped yep so uh, you know, if we move away from the expensive world to the other expensive world of band, uh, yeah. we've seen some things come out this week, uh, talking about college band where one of the circuits in the Southern United States said, Hey, we're not going to have any college bands on the field. And obviously the greater in the fall for football season, the greater implication there is, is that going to trickle out? You know, I know in our last episode, we talked about uh, there's, there was an Ohio circuit that canceled their season. Uh, I know in my area in New Jersey, you know, the circuit here is closely monitoring the situation. And uh, BOA came out yesterday or two days ago and said, Hey, you know what? We're going to have everybody do a five minute minimum time, which was down from what? Seven. I think it was around seven. Yeah. I can't, I am yeah. not sure. I've never done BOA. So I do not proclaim to be an expert there, but it's a, you know, it's a good move on their part. It's the reality. I, I mean, the only people who I've seen rehearsing are some groups, you know, personally, and obviously, you know, I don't know everything, but the only groups that I've seen rehearsing, able to rehearse in person, are some groups in Texas where UIL reigns supreme. And UIL mm -hmm. released a lengthy dossier last month regarding how to have safe rehearsals. Uh, and I've seen some groups in Michigan have their color guard rehearse. You know, and in other states too, I should say. But it's just we're at such a point right now. You know, today, middle, the end of June, we're looking at record cases of COVID nineteen trending upwards. So it's it's a very uncertain time. And I know New Jersey today just released their school reopening plan. So you know, here we are. We have all this information, but the one thing that we don't know is what's going to happen with the virus. Well, no, it will end yeah. at some point. Um, I just hope that everything gets worked out in time to, you know, there's college seniors that might not, might not get to march their, on their home field again. And yeah. that's, you know, and as with everything with this weird little uh, subsect of the performing arts world, the, it's, it's the kids, it's the students that get, screwed out of this whole thing because they're missing opportunities to perform uh, and they only have a limited time in which to do it. Yeah. And, and we don't want to sound insensitive to what's going on. You know, there's been over a hundred thousand deaths due to COVID in this country right now. And, 
it's obviously a terrible situation. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, this is a marching arts audio podcast and we want to try and take you away from that world for maybe 45 minutes to an hour once a month. So, you know, we're not the AP, we're not CNN, you know, we're not. <laughs> we trying. certainly aren't. Welcome to Noob Corner, everybody, where for this week's edition, we're going to talk about EQ, short for equalization. Uh, most of you have a general understanding of what it is, uh, but we wanted to talk a little bit about its uh, application and use and perhaps uh, misuse for those uh, that are not well-versed in audio and equalization. Yeah, one of the easiest ways you can couch equalization is, if you don't know what it is, is it's a way to kill the frequencies that you're not using. Also, it's a way to add color to certain sounds that you're getting out of instruments. So, f for example, when I, when I talk about unaided frequencies, uh, on your marimba, if you look at a frequency chart, your low A is 122. Assuming it's a four, uh, the instrument's tuned to A442, which I believe most mallet instruments are. So you can put a filter on there to remove all the sounds under 122. Why would you want to do that? Well, if you've ever noticed that when your students are playing their mallet instruments and you've got a mic on it and you're hearing like a thud or a low rumble, that's frame noise that your microphone is picking up. And these microphones will pick up the sound generally all the way down to 40, 50 hertz. And it's going to amplify that sound. If you multiply that by how many students you have playing, that's a lot of frame noise. That's a lot of mm -hmm. unwanted sound coming out of your instrument. Indeed. Microphones are not smart. They don't know what you want to pick up or what you don't want to pick up. They just kind of do what they do. And whatever comes out is what comes out. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and you can, let's say you're trying to make that bass drop sound great. So you're bringing up, in your general EQ on the mixer, your overall, your global, you're saying, you know, I want some more sound at 80 hertz. So I, cause I want that low synth patch to sound awesome. But then, oh my God, what is all this noise from the marimbas? You know, you can set the equalization on every channel on your mixer. Depending on your mixer, there are some analog boards which only have a very narrow EQ, but on digital consoles, the sky's the limit. Indeed, there's a, there's a lot uh, that can be done and a lot that can be avoided, a lot of problems that can be avoided by spending a little time and uh, uh, taking a look at and maybe putting an ear on how the instrument sounds um, in context with the entire ensemble and sort of making decisions on how you want that instrument to sound and how you can make those necessary adjustments. And that can change dependent on where you are in your show. Say, for example, you, you know, you're in the drum feature, the battery's right behind the pit, pit's wailing away up at like C, C5, C6, up at the top range of the keyboard. And man, you're getting a lot of drums through those mics and it's like overpowering the pit because mics are pretty sensitive. You know, that's a situation where in your scene on your mixer or manually, if you want to do this, I don't know why you would. But you can go in and say, hey, let me kill all the frequencies that we're not using here on the mallet instrument and get rid of all this background noise that we don't need. 
You know, mm-hmm. let's make the mix clearer or as clear as we can make it. Right. And, and EQ is, in my opinion, is the first step toward in the, the, the mixing process. So you can do all kinds of outboard effects or reverb and delay and whatever you want to do. But if your your instruments, your individual instruments aren't aren't EQ'd in such a way that it's accenting what you want to accent, uh, then you should take a look at that. Yeah, and it's not as simple as hey, I've got a Yamaha TF. Mm. Uh, I, there's preset scenes on there that were developed by the Cavaliers. I'm just going to throw these preset scenes on my instruments. Well, your mics not be in the same horizontal axis or the same vertical axis as the mics on the Cavaliers instruments. So you might need to alter that a little bit. You might have different mics and not every mic sounds the same. They have different frequency response. So maybe your microphone boosts at 5K and that's, you know, that's upper end cymbal noise up there. And you're just going to go nuts with all the cymbal noise. Well, why does my SM58 sound different than my 2035 or my 2020? It's, you got to look at the frequency response chart of each mic and sort of use your EQ to play with that. Mm-hmm. And, and being familiar with your PA helps too. Uh, helps a lot. So I know we mentioned this before in the, the gain, uh, gain staging segment, but um, if you know what your PA sounds like and what it accentuates and what it cuts uh, just by, by the nature of the different speakers. Um, you can make some decisions on your EQ on your channel level uh, based on that as well. Yeah. And if you guys have any questions and if, if you're dying to know more about equalization and your system, send us a tweet at Madcast on Twitter. For our interview today, we have with us the audio capture manager at Carolina Crown and Legends from Bugor, as well as the front ensemble arranger and sound designer at Legends, the one, the only Mr. James Pluth. Hello, James. Hey, guys. How are you guys doing? Doing very well. Doing great, bud. James, our first question always is, uh, what was your first audio gig in the marching arts? In the marching arts? Um... Or if you want to go prior to the marching arts, do you have a, a if you have audio I mean, experience prior to the marching arts, that would be great too. Well, when I was like growing up, um, I did some church audio at church, you know, but I don't really think that's a gig. I think that's more like a, you know, you look like you know how to turn knobs and press buttons. <laughs> Can you figure out why this makes a loud screeching sound? Um. So my first audio gig was, I don't even know if this is a gig, but the first thing I did with audio in the marching arts, um, I got back from tour in 2010, like as a marching member of the Bluecoats. And I went to Jacksonville State University for my undergrad. Mm -hmm. They have a, a pretty big marching band and they wanted to amplify the pit and have synth for the first time. And they bought all the stuff already. And I was the like section leader and they're like, okay, um, here's a mixer and here's an amp and here's some speakers and here's a bunch of microphones 
and we want to have scent and oh, you march blue coats and y'all had a bunch of cool sounds. So can you like make some of those? And here is you know main stage. Well, at the time it was actually <laughs> logic uh, and a motif. Uh, make it all work. And um, you know I had marched and I had helped like put audio stuff together. So I had some experience and I had mixed some things at churches and was reading a lot of books about it because I knew that that was the only big future in the art, uh, in the marching arts that was obvious. Right. Um, right. So I wanted to learn as much as possible. So it's probably like 19 or 20. And I figured all that out and all of the gear was like, we had, it was at the time where like Pearl and Adams were really in with PV. So it was all like this, this like PV analog board. It's like 32 Mm -hmm. channels, no DCAs. Um, And it was a, like some PV amps and some, some of those like PV, I don't even remember the name. Like SP2 or SP3 or something. Gray plastic enclosures. Oh, those things. Yeah. 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 And I don't even know if they bought a sub at first. I think we just had mains and the sub came later. Um, so we put all that together and, you know, a lot of that gear died like during the season, you know, like amps and stuff are not good. I would never recommend anyone get a PV amp. Um, so like halfway through the season, we ended up getting like an O1V and like the 7,000 S's and yeah. um, cutting edge technology at the time. Uh, yeah. Well, I still think that the, <laughs> for some, some applications, the O1V is the best mixer for this activity in, in some ways, if, in, if you're in that price range, you know, um, it, because it has a lot of features that the things that are the just upper end of that price range, like the TF or the X32 or the, um, like the PreSonus kind of don't have, uh, you know, it's, it's obviously missing stuff. It doesn't have network audio. It doesn't have a cool user interface. Um, it doesn't have DCAs, but it does have like all of the audio things you'd want. And it's like a, what, a 30 year old console at this point. But it is it is like mm. rock solid and battle tested. Um, you know, if, if somebody wants to spend two thousand or less on a mixer, it's that one. You know, um, so after doing that, uh, a f- now friend of mine, uh, but at the time he was kind of like an alumni, and he kind of helped with the drum line. He was the uh, the percussion guy at Kennesaw Mountain. Um, got in contact with me, and we started kind of working together. And I was doing doing more and more audio gigs. And at the mm-hmm. same time, um, I, I had taught this independent A drum line for a couple of years, uh, frequency and, mm-hmm. uh, was buying like a lot of my own gear to supplement that group. And then I ended up going to Atlanta quest in 2013 to be the front ensemble ranger and sound designer and, um, you know, audio dude. And, yep. uh, was doing that for a while. Um, 
and you know just kind of kept going from there um ended up getting hired at legends uh through another friend and then um you know now i'm at legends and crown and uh mm-hmm. i do audio at Kennesaw mountain and uh you know walton's my main school that i do like percussion and arranging and you know audio at and there's a few other audio clients here in Cobb county um mm-hmm. so yeah so are you are you full-time in band world is that your that's your gig uh i do it on the side um okay which for our later discussion for like network audio and dante and stuff um was kind of why i felt really comfortable with that uh mainly so i have benefits you know um oh yeah like i could either pay a bunch of money to do you know to have health insurance and benefits or i could do like find something where i could do you know, minimal hours a week, as long as all my stuff works. And, um, my undergrad minor was computer science. And I was like, cool, this, this opportunity kind of fell into my lap. And, uh, so I do that on the side, but I wouldn't consider that like my main gig at all. It's just kind of what I do to have mm-hmm. healthcare. As a payer of health insurance every month, uh, I am envious of that, that situation to not have to pay all that every month for health insurance would be awesome. So Congratulations. Yeah. And, and, you know, to those of you that are out there wanting to do, um, at one point I had wanted to do film scoring. I'd still like to do it, but to those of you that are listening to this that want to do music full time, you know, like learn how to code, learn how to like develop apps, learn how to web design, learn how to do some kind of computer based thing that you can do from home, um, to pay the bills. So you don't have to like wait tables or, or whatever. And generally you'll get a little bit more money. Uh, anyway, but it'll leave you a lot of time to do your music stuff. So we have a, a bunch of band directors who listen to the podcast. And a question that I'm always getting from people is, how do you balance, obviously with your main gig with Walton, how do you balance being on the audio side and being on the percussion side? So that's always tough. Um, at Walton, for example, I'm also, like, I write the horn book um my cohort scott brown writes the battery book and then i write the front ensemble and sound design um that's kind of how the design works out and so like i'm involved in a lot of aspects of that plus audio uh one of the things that i like the most about kind of my approach to audio with main stage and um dante and stuff is i have a tf series mixer at home i have you know, obviously main stage and all the libraries at home. I do a lot or as much as I can of the initial setup before I ever get to the gig, before I ever get to the school. Um, you know, whether that's getting the mixer file set up or all of the routing set up. So all I have to do is load it. Yep. Um, and I'll even like bring home carts and rewire them. Um, so that way when I'm at the school, I'm focused on teaching. I'm focused on, what the kids need. Um, and also, uh, I have three or four kids every year that are kind of my gurus that kind of know how to do that stuff. Um, they're generally juniors or seniors that have kind of gone through it all. But, um, same thing at legends and, you know, it's, having the teaching the kids to be able to solder things or teaching the kids to be able to troubleshoot on their own, um, is really helpful, you know, 
uh, and takes a lot off of my plate as far as like, okay, I'm not going to have to go scan for frequencies on wireless workbench at rehearsal because, you know, this kid is doing it. Who's, you know, one of the section leaders and has a wireless mic on. So he's already just, he just knows how to do it. Um, and I think it's important to have somebody like me, if you're going to really delve into the audio world to kind of be there and supervise everything and direct everything. But, um, having the kids themselves be able to learn it, you know, like I mm-hmm. don't have to plug anything in. I don't have to set anything up every day. You know, it's all, all on them. Um, frees me up to be able to do all the teaching and all of the other things that I have to do when I'm there in front of the kids. Right. And not to mention you're doing the kid a, a, a service in that if you're in a high school and you know, your center marimba is probably going to go march drum corps somewhere or end up teaching, um, getting that kid, that education, at least to start on it is going to help him out in the long run. Absolutely. Um, one of our synth players from this past summer at Legends, you know, he, well, I made all the synth players get Dante certified, but he, uh, you know, he, I just hand him books, I hand him, uh, you know, articles and stuff. And he just kind of knows how to do stuff. And he is now in school for, um, I think it's music production, but it might be electronic music, but he is, uh, you know, has so much knowledge and experience that, you know, you can go to school for audio, you can go to school for a lot of this stuff, but you're still going to start gigging. In, so if you're doing big gigs, you're going to be like the intern or like the logo, low guy on the totem pole. Cause there's just no, you don't have any experience mm-hmm. doing all this stuff every day. Um, yeah. and you know, you can read all the manuals, you can read all the specs, you can read all the books. And then there's still a lot of knowledge you don't have, um, that, sometimes it's counterintuitive or sometimes it's just like, you, you know, that it's going to work out a certain way. Um, they, you know, you don't get that in school, you know? Yep. Yeah. I, when I came out of audio school um, my first real job was, uh, in the business I'm in now. And it took me about a week to figure out that I didn't know what I thought I knew going into the business. So, um, nothing beats that hands-on experience and screwing things up to be honest yeah so this brings up another good point speaking of screwing things up what would you say while you were in the process of of learning as you started in the audio side of things what do you think was your biggest mistake that you made that you're willing to share gosh i'm like how many how many do you want uh (laughs) (laughs) the biggest mistake i made early on was it took me a couple years to really get into the hardware past open the box, plug the box into the wall thing, you know, like not, not in terms of like, you know, obviously like gain structure, EQ compression. I knew that stuff. What I'm more mean is like, Oh, this box isn't working or this port isn't working. I guess it's done now. Um, yeah. And not getting into some of the like more nitty gritty stuff on like how to solder, how to how to do all these repairs. Um, 
you know, not that you can do everything on the road, but, you know, I, I remember so many times where, you know, especially with some of the groups that don't have a lot of money, um, getting into it a lot and like, oh man, this thing broke. Well, I guess that vibe doesn't have a mic today, you know, cause that cable snapped in half, um, in the middle, you know, instead of like just realizing, oh, have tools. These are the tools you always need. Yeah. Or like having, uh, just, you know, options, I guess, to be able to fix anything, you know, and Evan, you know, we worked together for a year, you know, like, at this point now, a lot of times I'll just order a lot of stuff that I want to build myself, not because of the, uh, the fun of it. It's not fun, but the, uh, the idea that if I can build it, I know where any mm-hmm. problems are. I can, I can fix it. Mm-hmm. And it's also, that's another thing. Once you learn it, you can pass it on to your students. You know, so I think that was my biggest, like, that's not like a, an oof mistake, like some, you know, like obviously like sitting there seeing a penalty, you know, all, all of us have those, you know, I, I've been there and they're like four and a half minutes, five minutes, you know, (laughs) when like the, the UPS died because there was a rain delay or something and we didn't plug into the wall. You know, I've been there through all of those things, Mm. but, um, I think everyone in this activity has, but I think the bigger mistake for me for like, it, it was like 2013 or 2014 where I was just like, cool, I'm going to learn how to take all this stuff apart and put it back together fixed. That can save, not only to save the program a bunch of money, but the more you learn, the less, at least I find, the more I learn about things and objects and audio things, the less panicked I am when something goes, goes awry. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause I've, I've seen it before. I've seen it get fixed. It's not a big deal. Oh, we're missing a mic channel, whatever. We'll just go through the five steps, figure out what's wrong and replace it or fix it. And in 15 minutes, it's all trouble shot and you know, it's all done. Um, and there's no reason for panic. So it definitely raises your panic threshold a whole bunch. Once you, uh, get into the woods with some of the gear. So on the, on the flip side, uh, of the worst mistake, what's, what are you most proud of, of what have you accomplished? What have you done from an audio perspective that you're most proud of? Um, it would either be Walton this past fall or legends this past summer. I just watched both of those shows this afternoon, by the way. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, this is going to get me on my soapbox for what I think of the activity, but, um, a lot of people in the activity still worship the stereo image as God and say, cool, you need stereo left and stereo right. And that's it. But the problem is, um, even though, you know, you take a, a big BOA band like Walton or, or a drum corps like legends or crown and you put them in venues like Lucas oil stadium or Mercedes Benz or whatever that rock concerts play you know, we're facing the other direction. Our soundscape's a lot wider. And Mm -hmm. our whole activity is about matching audio with uh, visual. And you can't really do that with a stereo image that's from the 35 to the 35. Or from the 40 to the 40, if you're 
a little bit of a smaller group, you know? Um, and it often creates a lot of deception between what you see and what you hear. Um, like it, it tricks your ear to look for something in different directions than it really is coming from in a, in a kind of bad way. Stereo image only works for like 10% of the crowd. Right. If you're, if you're panning stuff around, it's only going to work for the, the center section. And yes, we're aiming for the judges. Maybe that's the point. Well, I think that, but I, I even think that that's arguable, especially in DCI where drum cores get a portion of the ticket sales. Oh yeah. Wow. Yeah. So when I hear a solo trumpet coming out of the house right speaker, I expect that trumpet to be house right. And often that house right trumpet or that trumpet is not there. Yeah. And I spend a lot of brain power trying to figure out where that trumpet player is so I can, I can look at the player. Exactly. So, you know, if you have a, like, let's say the stereo right is on the 35 and you have seats on the 30 and the trumpet is on the 15, well, you're going to hear it out of your left ear, but it's out of your right eye. Mm -hmm. Both of those setups were designed to kind of combat that and have as wide of a, it's not really even stereo anymore, although there was definitely stereo techniques used in some of that. Um, to get your eye where it needs to be, and yeah. to provide a good aural experience to um, the entire audience. Trying to give every audience member the, the best aural experience, I think, is something that's really important because they're all paying members. You know, it, it be a way it's a little bit different. You know, like most of the audience is mom and dads. They're there to see their kid. They're the, the main audience is the judge. It's, it's not that... It, everyone shouldn't get a good experience, especially when you get into like some of the bigger regionals and grand nationals where there actually is kind of fans there now. And that fandom starting to develop in BOA. Um, but especially in DCI where it, it, it's all fans, you know, they're all paying money to come see this thing. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, I'm most proud of the, the Walton thing, okay. the, the legends thing from this past summer was, and I, I have questions about those specific setups that we'll get to later. I'm sure. <laughs> cool. You know, maybe a good time to to jump into some of that talking about Dante. I think that's sort of the the thing that James, you sort of made a little bit of a name for yourself for in our little niche of a subsection of audio engineers and the activity is just how far you have been pushing. And arguably, you know, you're not pushing; you're utilizing what's yeah. available with Dante. Um, so yeah. So why, why don't we give the audience like a, explain it like I'm five example of what Dante is to get started. Yeah. So, um, not so long ago, right. And most groups still, uh, you'll have patch bays, which are, you know, rows and rows of quarter inch jacks where you would take an out and put it into an end and you could kind of move around your outs and ends that way, or have those kind of ghost trap ghostbusters looking snakes. And, those were ways to kind of get a lot of audio into one place and then route it where you want it to go. Mm. Um, what Dante is, is essentially a, and this is a really big oversimplification of Dante, but it's essentially a digital version of that. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot more to it than that. 
but it provides a lot of flexibility because instead of having, you know, on a snake, like on a 20 channel snake, you've got a pretty thick cable and it can only go one place. And if you want to get audio in or out from somewhere else, you have to get another one of those and they're really heavy and they're hard to move. But, you know, you're kind of stuck with audio goes from this snake box to this mixer. Done. What Dante does is put all of those same capabilities in there, but it's running across a single uh, network cable. You can run it across a, a second network cable for redundancy. So already there's a little bit of safety built in. And then you can route it from any device to any other device on that Dante network. So if you have a mixer and then a monitor mix and then some wireless receivers and then, you know, your, your stage box that has all your ins and outs on it, all of those are on the same network. And you can just by the click of a button, say audio goes from here and it ends up here. Um, which is kind of nice because you don't have to recable everything. You know, it's all just plugged in. All of the logic isn't cabled. It's computer logic. And also, it's, it gives you more flexibility because, you know, channel one on your stage box can go into two different things or three different things if you want um, as, without having to have a bunch of splitters. So it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the, the I'm going to play the devil's advocate for the rest of this interview. And um, <laughs> I'm going to be I'm going to be a little bit of the anti Dante guy. Not that I'm anti Dante. It's that the level of um of maintenance and the the failure points of what could go wrong when you're setting up in 3 minutes is where i i would choose to avoid it if at all cost and where applicable i guess my next question is in what application should i be looking at dante as a viable option for routing audio over regular analog copper? Uh, okay. So I think there's a few, um, a few categories. Thing number one is, is are any of your devices too far away to walk and see, um, the device to, to double check that everything's good? Uh, I always have a computer in front of me at the console and I can watch things show up on the Dante network. And, and have the green light. So I know everything's going to work before we do a sound check. And when you have a lot of devices or you have a lot of devices that are out on the field or out like on the zeros or something, um, mm -hmm. you know, if four minutes isn't enough time to necessarily go run to every device. Uh, so I, if you can't get to all your devices quickly, I think that's one viable option. Another viable mm -hmm. option is if you have to have a lot of weird routing. So, um, if you're doing anything where you have like a couple stage boxes in like a prop or something, and some of those need to go to a main stage setup or uh, an Ableton setup, and some of those need to go straight to the console, um, or any kind of thing like that where there's just a lot of different routing, anything where it's not just, it goes from the snake right into the mixer for every channel. Um, I think Dante becomes simpler for that because you end up mm -hmm. with less physical points of failure, less splitters and all of that. Um, and remember, you have redundancy in all this. You have a primary and a secondary network for you know, 95% of all Dante devices. And then I think the third um, 
application for it is when you start getting into giant channel counts, um, mm-hmm. even if you are just going from a cart with a couple stage boxes in it into a mixer, when you get past 20 or 30 channels in a snake, it's just easier to run it that way, I believe. And I think that all of that is with the caveat of have somebody you have somebody there that knows how to make it work. Um, That's so important. I think if you don't have a, an audio person that feels comfortable doing this, like don't use it, you know, don't use Dante with the exception of maybe if you're like a group that has a rack mount, like a TF rack or a, you know, X32 rack, and you want to use Dante virtual sound card for your Mac minis or your laptop. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's also a viable application because it's all contained within one cart and there's not a physical audio interface. You need a power. I, 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 and, and this is coming from, I see a lot of, you know, I looked at your, your setup at Walton today and the, and the one at legends, and that's an involved, involved process that requires a lot of knowledge and a lot of expertise and expertise, not just I read a manual kind of knowledge kind of expertise. Right. Um, yeah, Dante is a, it, it's not going to do anything for your sound, right? Like hmm. if you're buying a new system, you know, you need to make sure that your mics and your, your outputs are all going to sound good before you get into any of this. You know, um, now that said, I, uh, Yamaha makes speakers that have Dante built in and Yamaha's implementation on the TF series and the DZR series of Dante, um, does have some quick configure modes that make it quite a bit easier. Um, Eric, I don't know if you played around with those cause I know you don't really like the, the TF <laughs> series. No, I don't, but um, the- to be, I, I rarely see the TF. Most of I see the CL or the QL. So I haven't gotten into that quick configure stuff in the TF. Um, but I, from what I understand, it's actually pretty darn useful and almost foolproof. Uh, almost, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. So we talked earlier about, like, I do some IT stuff. We'll start there. Dante Networking... Um, somebody told me this at NAM, somebody at the Audinate booth, that like Dante networking is kind of like you kind of have to relearn how networking works because there's things you would do on a normal network that you kind of want to do the opposite for on a Dante network. Um, how traffic is managed, how security is managed, mm-hmm. it shouldn't be. Um, you don't want to have a DHCP server that assigns mm-hmm. addresses, you want to have everything just assign itself an IP address. Um, and those are things that are out there. All the Dante training is free, but yeah, you know, it's, I've seen groups have a Dante like mixer, a couple stage boxes or or something, and they're all run through like an Apple airport. Yeah. And that is kind of the opposite of what you want to happen. Um, and then there's other things that we've learned on the road. Uh, <laughs> one of the things we learned <laughs> at Legends last summer was we had two cable runs that were like over 300 feet. And spec-wise, right, um, any network run that long wants Cat6 cable. 
Mm-hmm. Well, if you coil and uncoil Cat6 cable all day, every day, um, the twisted pairs are twisted tighter in Cat6 than in Cat5, and they, are, they will break. So huh. we learned that even though, and this is one of those experience things you learn, um, even though Cat6 is the correct cable to use for that length, for the amount of data we had going through it, Cat5 was actually a better choice because it's more durable. More durable and less less data passing through it. So yeah, you know that's just one of those things you learn. And I think um, it's also important to know that in the copper versus, I mean, Dante works on copper. Wise, yeah, but, uh, the copper versus digital debate here, right? The length of cable also kind of will help you make that choice. Um, you know, you can't have a microphone cable or a speaker cable be so long um, without kind of degrading your signal after a certain mm-hmm. point. Mm. Digital cables are the same way, but generally those lengths are a little bit longer. So talking about the Dante and how it can be used for the setups, talk a little bit, if you can, about how you maximize use of, of Dante at Legends and at Walton this past year. Uh. So with both groups, um, they had really wide spreads. So with Legends, the pit was kind of in the traditional place, but we had five speakers on the field spread from five to five. And then like one was touching the back sideline. And then we had six across the front. All of those were Dante enabled. And most of those had stage boxes in them, so microphones could be plugged in just to their local speaker cart. We're not running 100-foot microphone cables for like a shotgun mic or a solo spike. Mm-hmm. And it made sense to use Dante for all of that because, one, the, the cable lengths were so long. Um, if we were running you know, just analog cable, right, even for powered speakers, one chain of that would have had um, six speaker cables to go onto the field that would have been, it was 300 feet between two carts. So it would have been well over 300 feet of cable because it would be one cable length unless you kind of divided it up and had connectors in the middle. And that would be really heavy to move. So network cables would be lighter and easier to deploy. And then there was also a bunch of microphones back there that would have to be plugged in. And that would have to be another, you know, just huge series of cable. And we also would have to sound check every single one of those things, which we did still. But if one didn't work, there was no other options. We didn't have any, we wouldn't have any other ports. You know, there's not a backup 500 foot cable, you know, um, That's a great point. You know, like we have backups of almost everything, but something that big, you don't carry a backup of usually. If you do, it's on the truck. So for us, it was turn the, like, you know, turn the monitor on, on the mixer cart. And cool, all the speaker carts show up, all the Dante devices show up. And then, you know, we had some pre-show sound design that, there was different things happening in every speaker. So eventually you could tell that all of them were online. Um, yeah. You know, and we would sound check with the soloists, but you know, 
it really cut down on the time to know that everything was going to be good or that everything wasn't if we were going to have a problem that night. So I, I'm looking at the at the I took a screenshot of the legend setup right now. I missed the I missed the back two speakers, the ones on the twenties when I was watching. There's the ones show. on the fives too. So five on the front hash, twenty like halfway between the back hash and the back mm-hmm. sideline, fifty on the back sideline, and then mirror image on the other side of the field. And then six along the front. Right. So uh, I don't know if you want to, well, I guess we'll start with legends. I don't know if you want to give away trade secrets, but what was the intent of the the speakers on the field? We had a lot of soloists and stuff backfield. Um, yep. For the, the sh- you know, show is about like sirens. And at one point the core is like underwater. So some of it was to have those soloists sound come out back there. And some of it was to have yep. the sound design come out from back there. Um, like I used uh, a lot of lyrics and lyric fragments to try and tell the story. And it's supposed to be the guard singing. So wherever the guard was, that's where the lyrics would come from. And it really kind of helped that. And then sometimes we wanted to confuse your ear. So we would have a soloist on like the five yard line on side one, play into a mic backfield, and it would come out of side two, five yard line speaker. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of it was, uh, as we were talking about earlier, just trying to guide your eye or trick your eye in um, what you're hearing. And there's also some, some structural reasons. Um, the, the way that the lyrics kind of went into some of the brass stuff, um, or was singing with the brass stuff made it a little bit easier to keep everything in tune. So the lyrics didn't sound out of tune with what the horn line did on any given night based on like heat and humidity and just, you know, how, how the kids are. Cause you know, we all say we play in tune, but we all know we drift as a group. (laughs) Um, allowed them to be able to hear that stuff and think about that as part of their ensemble sound, not just kind of staple some singer on top and say, cool, you know, obviously these two ideas aren't, you know, um, an ense- like an ensemble, it's, uh, you know, something played over the top. Mm-hmm. And the, the six along the front were were those essentially just coverage yeah uh, coverage for the front coverage for the front and some extreme panning a few times in the show so james tell us about walton and was was there any difference in how you deployed your system there compared to legends uh actually it was pretty similar um every the pit was split up there so we had like four pit pods um i think it was like 20 yard line, 40 yard line, 40 yard line, 20 yard line about. And yep, I'm looking at it right now. That's exactly correct. Some of it was based kind of on our rehearsal situation, you know, where we're in the like, you know, have a band tower. We have a, you know, a little bit of a ways back, which, you know, like, I think it's like 10 to 15 feet. Um, So we push the keyboards back onto the field and then spread them out one so we could have our 
ensemble balance and blend be more consistent from day to day when we go from rehearsal to performance because you know we've all been there right where the band director's right on top of the pit so they're just using their ears to balance they're like okay pit this needs to get turned down when you play this softer and then you get to a show and like the pit's not loud enough but that wasn't the wrong decision to say from that vantage point but it is when you're talking about projecting to the box and the other was to try and that pit's really big. There's eight marimbas and eight vibes and other stuff um, to try and get rid of that huge visual weight right there on the 50 uh, that mm-hmm. it's hard to have anything visual uh, happen right behind it um, or even in front of it. So that was part of the kind of decision, but each, each uh, pod had a stage box um, or a TF rack. One of the pods had a TF rack for uh an audio, basically an audio switcher for the two Mac minis. Mm-hmm. And was that an, was that an unusually large front ensemble for, for your school? No, this year, it's always eight eight. there's less kids registering for bands, you know, with all of this. And I'm sure everyone can kind of relate to that, but, um, that was the second year that we were eight and eight. And the year before that we were seven and eight. So the, the, each pod had its own stage box or a TF one. Were the kids on ears? Were they what? Were they on ears? The kids? Yeah. All the kids had in ears. So that was another reason to use Dante is there's like 22 kids in the pit. So that's 22 outs right there. Plus there was, um, Oh, you did a mix for each kid. I, I did more group mixes, but there was times where there was a mix for individuals. Um, Mm -hmm because they were kind of at that angle too. So I wanted to make sure that delay wasn't going to be an issue. I mean, it's really only like a four foot difference, but you know, how fast is a 16th note at 180 beats a minute? You know, like the, the amount of milliseconds actually isn't insignificant. Um, yeah. So we had a stage box and then there was a speaker in front. So all the speakers are coming from, those stage boxes. Okay. Which was again, nice because in, in DCI, we get that extra five minutes if we have an audio issue, but for BOA, you know, we have four minutes and our pre-show is a minute and a half long. So we had two and a half minutes to set up from the time they said go. And Mm -hmm. I also had 12 channels of wireless being able to see on the screen, like, okay, the, all the stage boxes and the TF rack show up, all the Dante virtual sound card stuff shows up. Cool. All right, let's soundtrack all you wireless people. Okay, I need to rescan you. Cool, y'all go on the field. Show starts. Like I'll have already sent soundtrack the synth, and then like any other issues that come up, I can already see at least an approximation of everything's working or everything's not. You know, now past that, if it's like a kid, you know, broke a pen on a modular snake somewhere, or like, you know, somebody's in your <laughs> battery died, the, the kids can all solve all of that themselves. So, um, the, they were all on, uh, sorry, they're on wireless in-ears and you had no, wireless. they were wired, wired in ear, Wired in ear. Copy. Yeah, no, I'm not, I, we had 12 channels of wireless mics. I would, in a situation where the in-ears are vital to the band playing together, I would never trust wireless. Is there anything you would do differently if you, if you were given this again? If you were trying to do this again, uh, 
<laughs> as I'm planning what this year's going to look like. Yeah. I don't even know if this counts as different. Um, but I think I would have an extra channel for in-ears um, on each stage box that a kid could plug into if, and, you know, an extra set um, in each drawer in each uh, rack um, just as backup. But the setup, like I said, it actually worked really well. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it, it, the whole thing is in the Facebook page, the, the walkthrough. Um, and mm -hmm. On my Facebook page, you can see pictures of it. But I mean, it, it was two and a half minutes to set it up till the show had to start. And we were often like 30 seconds of like chill time, you know, well, not chill time, but, you know, like not plugging stuff in, you know, we're, we know we're all good time. There's also just some common sense things you can do um, to help yourself out. So when I designed that setup, you know, I, I kind of put the carts where I wanted them. I always do a, like a layout of something in uh, PowerPoint, you know, mm -hmm. um, just because I think it's the easiest thing to just quickly sketch something out. And then I start thinking about, okay, where's the easiest way, place for this cable to be stored. So if this car, if this stage box is on a speaker cart and the speakers are already plugged into it and I just got to get power over there and signal, well, all of those cables are braided together. And then, I mean, they're all shielded, but they're all braided together. Um, mm -hmm. If it makes sense to run to the mixer cart, which it probably does, where are they going to plug in? You know, like, is it going to be a, a big problem? So I, you know, took a hole saw and drilled a bunch of holes in my cart and put ports in myself. Um, mm -hmm. And just kind of thought about the logistics of how all that would work and what's like the easiest foolproof method. So I had four Dante ports for the primary network and then four Dante ports for the secondary network and then four mm -hmm. twist lock powers. And all the twist lock powers were all the same color because they were all interchangeable. And all the primary yep. ports were all black and all the primary connectors were black. And all of mm -hmm. the secondary connectors were silver and ports were silver. But you could plug into any one. That's another cool thing about Dante is, you know, you don't have to make sure the number eight cable goes in the number eight hole. Yeah. You just have to make sure that the network cable goes in a network port. And if you have a second network that you're not plugging the first network into the second one. Um, but just trying to make it like as foolproof as possible. So the parent that runs the cable over could just go, okay, black goes in black, silver goes in silver. And then, you know, power goes in the only option for power. <laughs> yeah. And that's <laughs> the same, this, the same uh, approach that everybody's been taking for years with analog, right? Color coding, labeling. Oh, and, and I, when I say color coded, I don't mean that I taped everything. I mean, like I bought, silver and black mm -hmm. connectors with silver and black yep. boots and silver and black actual receptacles. Mm -hmm. So I, I never had to worry about something falling off. So with DCI past couple of years going the sort of loudness route and the coverage route with the line arrays, 
you know, do you see yourself moving toward moving away from point source towards line array? Do you see yourself staying think, with point source? I think line array is going to obviously get more coverage. And also, um, a, a lot of the line arrays, because they're a high-end product, when you're talking about um, the ones that people are actually using, have better fidelity. Um, mm-hmm. So they're definitely more expensive, but those six speaker towers on the front sideline for Legends would have become four or potentially even three, um, mm-hmm. which saves on truck space and saves on kids moving stuff and um, just stuff to check. So for a situation like that, it makes um, it's it's not just the dollars and cents, right? It's like you know, do, do I have somebody to move this thing? Do I have space to put it? All of that. And like I said, I think the fidelity is a little bit better. You're going to get more even coverage up and down um, than the point source still because you're losing less, you know, like inverse square law there, right? Um, yep. So you're going to get more even coverage up and down. Um, the Legend system got really good cro- coverage left to right, but up and down yeah. was still an issue, you know, um, there was a rule proposed that talked about, you know, like trying to not blast the front row and measure decibels. But the, the thing is, is no matter what, it's going to be louder in the front row because we're not flying arrays and you're closer. So the inverse inverse square law is going to get you there no matter what. But I think it was, well, it was, it was somebody in the Facebook group, um, at the January when that rule came up, it was like, cool. Well, I'm just going to turn my bottom box to like halfway down and tell them to measure that one. If they like want to measure decibels, you know, like, um, <laughs> it's not a line source anymore. You know, you lose that, but it's, <laughs> you, you can do that if you absolutely need to. Um, so I think that we're never going to get to the two to one rule. We're never going to the activity, just the way that it works. It's never where the it's never going to happen where the front row gets the same experience that the judges box gets the only way you'll do 20 that rows if, behind the only way you'll do that is if you fly speakers that's the only way you've done the whole split pit thing you've done a whole bunch of stuff do you ever see the trend being to revert back to central or, or front sideline front ensemble with the, you know, we can argue about the PA all day, but do you think we're in a phase of experimentation that is eventually going to end and everything is going to kind of revert back to where it was in terms of setups? Um, I know that like, you know, the drum corps, uh, it's there's been some experimentation and people are going back to it. I think with BOA, it'll be a little bit different. Um, for me, like the thing we did with Walton last year and anything that may happen in the future is kind of dependent on what the kids can do. Um, Hmm. we had kind of done a little bit of a split the year before and we had been using monitors for, um, several years. So those skills are already in their wheelhouse. They already know how to do those things. If, you know, 
if I have a big senior class and then like a really big freshman class the next year, oh, we'd be on the 50 and like <laughs> the most traditional setup possible. <laughs> um, yeah. But that said, I think that all of those things make it, yes, harder on the pit, but um, might start to make some of the emotion and effect-based things cooler because it the pits down there on the 50 and you know like it's it's like the broadway pit concept right except yep. you don't see a broadway pit you know you see the actors that's front and center but that's not hasn't always been the case for activity so if you can get them out of the way i don't you know i don't think it needs to like be a science experiment, just do it to do it. But you know, why is your, why is it that your color guard has to hide there on that? Like the biggest part of the stage, um, that's where they hide all their stuff, you know, as opposed to that being like the, the performance center, you know? Yeah. Um, like I said, that said, it's, it's all about like what the kids can do, you know, like what's a, what's a worse experience you know, not being able to see a couple little, um, visual nuance things or not being able to have this cool moment or the ensemble falling apart, you know? Um, <laughs> and I think I started that Walton video and I think I also started the legends video with like, Hey, don't do this unless you know what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> you <know? laughs> um, with Kennesaw Mountain a few years ago, we had a bunch of like on the field speakers and stuff and they were hidden in props and, I'm not there every day, but like there was a couple of like rehearsal days where they called and they're like, Hey, um, I know you're Walton. Uh, we can't make sound come out. And you know, with them being like a client that I'm at a lot of time, um, you know, we, they just hop on the Wi-Fi and I screen share in and I fix it. But right. You know, it's, all of those things are experiments. Yes. I don't know that we'll like, we'll ever see everyone just go back to doing the traditional thing. But I think that we're still on the upslope and we're going to start to see more and more groups try some of this stuff and fail miserably at it. Um, either because they haven't thought about all of it or they don't understand what it's going to take to really do all of that. I've had, you know, some smaller bands and ask me to, you know, put this, some put something somewhere and there's a lot that goes into that not only from a planning perspective initially but from a maintenance everyday yeah. uh situation where you know you have to be prepared to handle problems every day if they arise and to be frank if i'm not going to be there every day to help them with that situation i try to steer them away from that sort of thing yeah i mean the legend setup, you know, like I drew up a diagram and then, uh, Mike and Evan saw it and like, we all talked about it for a while. I'm like, Hey, let's do this this way. Hey, let's do this this way. And then when all this, showed up, like all the, sorry. And then when all the stuff right. showed up, uh, it was like, Hey, you know how we were talking about doing this? Nah, let's do it <laughs> this way. And, Oh man, this like clamp thing that we need to clamp this thing to this other thing. We need to go to a hardware store and figure it out. You know? Um, there, there's a lot 
that went into that. And the same thing for the Walton thing. And I should add that both Legends and Walton, my wife writes the drill, um, mm-hmm. Dr. Lindsay Schuler, And we talk a lot about how to integrate the music and the visual and all of the system stuff into one package. So it's not just, hey, I'm just going to set the pit up this way. It's me and another person that spend a lot of time together um, figuring out how these things are going to work and why they're going to work that way. And then I'll sit on the computer and do a bunch of research about gear and like just math about coverage and math about power distribution and, you know, yeah. all of those things. And so, by the way, that should, that should be, you know, your group, your group should be in a different class. One that, uh, stipulates that the drill designer and the audio person are married. Like that's an unfair <laughs> advantage in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. Well, and like, like I said, you know, like at legends and I'm like, I'm like legends on the front ensemble ranger and, um, Mia and the, the batter ranger Landon yours and the horn ranger Steve Vento work really closely together to get the music mm-hmm. what it should be. And we all know that that's a part of it. Like the audio mm-hmm. stuff is a part of it. And it's, it's very above board. Like, Hey, these things are going here and this is the effect I'm going for. And you know, like yeah. in designing the legend show, I had, I had like two sets of, um, studio monitors. And then I got a bunch of those Behringer, uh, like hundred dollar, $200 black yeah. thing. Uh, and I set them all up in my room and like, listen to the playback. And would adjust things based on wow on that. Um, so there's a, I mean, it's an incredible amount of planning. And if if you're not willing to one show up early, like, and I don't mean early, like the normal marching band early, like 15 minutes before rehearsal. I mean like an hour or more early every day to check the gear, just like you would if you were any kind of other audio engineer. And you're not worried, like willing to spend eight hour days figuring out and designing the setup, like multiple eight hour days, you know, you probably shouldn't be trying to get that far out of the box. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, there's answers and stuff out there, but when you get into some of the crazier setups, there's not a book to tell you how to do it. There sure isn't. There would be a, maybe you should write it. (laughs) Yeah. Write this, like write a weird niche book that like four people need. (laughs) If there was one thing that you wish directors would know about what you do, about what is capable or what is a, a setback. If there was one thing that, you could let directors know about audio. What would that thing be? I guess that every time you spend money, you either need to be hiring somebody that has knowledge or gaining knowledge yourself. Love it. Um, You know, like I have, you know, I, I, I have so many people ask me like, Oh man, like, should we buy this? Should we buy that? Should we buy this? And like, yeah, probably. Do you have somebody to like make it work or do you, ha- or can you make it work? 
are you are you ready to invest the time in something that you don't know and depending on who's asking the question that person may or may not have any actual interest in audio i mean yeah i mean there's there's no gear knowledge that like in a podcast i'm going to be able to impart to somebody or that anyone's going to be able to impart to somebody that's going to be like oh wow that's the answer and i'm good then you know (laughs) (laughs) there's not a secret key like there's not it's about gaining knowledge in a bunch of areas because audio itself is more than one area like we we've talked about dante a lot um but midi you got to know stuff about that. You've got to know stuff about computers. You've got to know stuff about microphones and pickup patterns. You've got to know stuff about speakers and coverage patterns. You've got to know stuff about power distribution. You've got to know stuff about cabling, soldering, all of these things. It's all under the umbrella of audio, but it's not all the same kind of knowledge. Thank you, James. Yeah, James, thanks for coming on. Um, Dude, thanks for having me. I, I appreciate it a lot. Dude, thanks for having me. This has been really fun. That's about it for us, everybody. Uh, Thanks to James Pluth, uh, who joined us this month on the pod. As always, you can reach out to us at Madcast on Twitter. You can obviously find us in the Marching Arts Audio Discussion Facebook group. For Eric, I'm Evan Kempe, and this has been the Madcast. Madcast.